Chapter Three of the Junior Classics, Volume Eight: Animal and Nature Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Junior Classics, Volume Eight: Animal and Nature Stories, edited by William Patton. Marcus Aurelius, by Octave Thanet. The ship was nearing the Irish coast. It was a delightful June day, and most of the passengers were on deck. The two ladies sat a little apart from the crowd of ship chairs under the cabin awning. One was fair, plump, pretty, and dressed in black. The cabin passengers called her the lovely widow. She was a Mrs. Norris on her way to Europe to join her brother, accompanied by her two nephews, sons of two brothers, her sister Nora and her maid. The other lady was Miss Nora. She was much younger than her sister, whom she did not resemble in the least being a tall, straight, slim, handsome young woman with black hair and dark grey eyes in which sparkled a suspicious gleam of mirth. Mrs. Norris was speaking. He is a perfect young savage. Such manners and such grammar, I am sure no one would dream that his father was a bishop. Do you suppose all Western boys are that way? And such a temper, too. I assure you, Nora, he was fighting the whole time we were in New York. Look at the way he treats Edmund. I wonder the boy stands it. Poor nice fellow. Edmund is nice, answered Nora, but Oscar has his good points. What are they all crowding aft for? With an exclamation of those dreadful children, the elder lady extricated herself from her rug and hurried aft. Nora followed. Evidently there had been a quarrel of some sort. The purser and the deck steward were each holding a boy. The steward's captain, a handsome, flushed, black-haired lad of thirteen, was kicking and pushing and making violent efforts to wiggle out between the steward's legs. The other lad stood perfectly quiet. He was taller than the dark boy and might have been two years older, but he was of much slighter build. His fair hair was disordered, his nose bleeding, and his collar torn. Looking up into the purser's face, he said in a low tone, Please, let us fight it out. He'll bully me again if you don't. At this, the dark boy stopped in his violent attacks on the steward's legs and said, breathlessly, Well, you ain't such a milksop after all, Ned. No, no, said the purser, no fighting in the gallia. You two young gentlemen must promise to let each other alone while you are on shipboard, or... No promise, Ned, the dark boy interrupted. We can have it out on shore, you know. Say I promise. Let me go. I promise too, then, said the fair boy. Mind you both remember, said the purser, releasing his captive and turning to Mrs. Norris. No harm done yet, ma'am. Both boys recognized their aunt, and they had been too busy with each other before to look about. They stood silently by. Oscar grinning and Edmund frowning while she apologized for their conduct. Then she turned to them and led them to an impromptu court of justice behind the wheelhouse. The proceedings were brief. Oscar told his story. As usual, he related a perfectly plain, uncolored tale, making no excuse for himself. We were up on deck, Aunt Nellie and Aunt Nora, and, and Ned was reading, and us boys wanted him to play shovelboard, and he wouldn't, so just for fun I tried to show the boys. While he was reading, you know, how near I could come to hitting his cap and not hit it. I made a mistake and hit it, and just then the wind blowed it, and it went overboard. And the boys laughed, and he jumped in and said, Who knocked my head off? And I said it was me, and he said he wasn't going to take any more bullying from me, and up and hit me in the face, and then I hit him back. I told him I was only fooling, and he didn't mind, and kept on getting madder and hitting until I got mad too, and that's how it happened. But I didn't mean to knock his hat off, and I'll fight him all he wants on shore. I didn't know he was fooling, said Edmund, and not Nellie. It isn't just this time. I don't mind once, but it's all the time, and I truly can't bear it. 
The boy's pale face flushed as he spoke, his voice trembling over the last words, and he turned his head away, winking his eyes hard. Oscar's own eyes grew round with amazement. It was all he could do to keep from whistling. He listened to his aunt's reproaches in silence, abstractedly sliding up and down a freshly tarred rope, and at their close, when sentence was pronounced, keeping his high spirits below deck the rest of the day, he merely nodded his head and walked off, saying, All right, Aunt Nelly, that's fair enough, I'm sure. I'll stay all right. Well, said Mrs. Norris in a puzzled way, did everyone see such a boy? I don't believe he cares a particle. Mercy! The last ejaculation was caused by her seeing Oscar's back. Let him go, said Nora, who was shrewder than her sister. Don't say anything about that today. I'm not sure about his not caring. Oscar went directly to the cabin. His young head was fully occupied trying to make out his cousin's behavior. The boys had never seen each other until they met in New York, about a week previous to sailing. It was Oscar's first visit east. The New York boys were amused by his western way of speaking and showed their amusement openly. They made fun of his dress, too, which, to be sure, was rather queer, for his mother had been dead many years and the bishop, good man, was only anxious to encourage the tradespeople in his own town, and took whatever they were pleased to offer. Mrs. Morris soon reformed his wardrobe, and Oscar went to work, himself, reforming his tormentor's manners with his fists. He was in the full career of his missionary work, and well covered with bruises when it came time to sail. Edmund was the only New York boy now left him. It happened that Edmund had taken little notice of Oscar, thinking him a rude, quarrelsome, noisy fellow, while Oscar had a slight opinion of Edmund, a boy who did not fight or play games and always afraid of soiling his clothes. He said to himself that he would give Ned a pretty lively voyage. At first, Edmund was simply scornful. Then he became irritated, at last, angry in good earnest. The quarrel was the sequel of a series of petty annoyances. Nevertheless, it bewildered Oscar. Ned had not acted in the least as expected. He could fight, and though he had fought in an ignorant, unskilled fashion that aroused Oscar's pity, he could fight vigorously and take hard knocks without whimpering. Most marvelous of all, Ned, whom he had pictured wrapped in self-admiration because he lived in New York and his father was so rich, Ned had been hurt by the teasing. While he thought, the boy sat with his feet curled up under him on the long cabin seat that looks out onto the sea, and his cheek was pressed against his little grimy hand. He could see the steel-blue waves moving towards the ship in wide scallops and the white seagulls flying between the ocean and the sky. Yet he hardly noticed them. So deeply was he thinking that he started when a hand was laid on his shoulder. Then he saw and pulled Aunt Nora down beside him. "'What were you thinking of?' said she. "'Of Ned,' he answered. "'He ain't so mean as I thought he was. At any rate, he ain't a coward.' "'I could have told you better than that,' said Nora. "'Why, Oscar, once I saw him hold a mad dog so that some little girls could run away. He held it until a man came running and knocked the poor beast over the head. It was Ned's favorite dog, too.' And when it had drawn its last breath, he sat down and cried over it. Hm, said Oscar. He was pretty brave. What did you do? I was in the house. I ran down to him, but when I got there, the dog was dying. I heard Ned say, Oh, please, kill him quick. Poor Louis. Guess he felt bad, said Oscar. He is fond of animals, even those most people dislike. Didn't you hear of his collection of snakes? He has tamed them so that he can do anything with them. Once, most unluckily, they got out of the box and came down the stairs into the drawing-room, which was filled with ladies. And they, everyone, jumped on the chairs and hollered, said Oscar. They did precisely that, Oscar, 
everyone except your Aunt Lizzie. She stood still and told us how harmless the snakes were until, knowing her, I suppose, they all glided up to her when she climbed a chair, too, very quickly. Luckily, Ned happened to be in the house and heard the commotion and ran in. He whipped the snakes up and wound them on his arm as coolly as though they had been pieces of rope. Oscar was evidently impressed, but his prejudice made a last rally. He muttered something about Ned's being a nice boy if he were not so airy, always fussing about his clothes and talking in a mincing way, just like a New York boy. "'Do you remember,' said Nora, "'how the boys plagued you in New York merely because you didn't talk and dress quite as they do?' "'Didn't you think it mean of them?' "'Mean as dirt,' Oscar said promptly, "'and I made him sick of it, too. "'I guess they won't try it to another Western feller.' "'But, my dear boy, don't you see you're doing the same thing? "'You tease Ned and make him unhappy "'because he doesn't dress and talk like the boys you know at home.' "'Oscar shrugged his shoulders and then he laughed. "'Maybe you're right, Aunt Nora. "'Anyhow, I didn't mean to be mean, "'and I'm willing to make up if Ned is.' "'Nora squeezed a little grimy hand so affectionately "'that he shrank back lest she should kiss him. "'Before everybody, "'the erratic and inconsiderate conduct of women "'kissing boys was one of his trials. "'However, she was more judicious. "'She went on. I know I could trust you to be just, Oscar. Only you must remember that Ned isn't impulsive like you. It takes him a long time to get over things. You have made him unhappy, and he may not be ready to forgive you at a minute's notice. But if you persevere, I'm sure he will understand you, and you will be the best friends possible. She resolved to try to soften Edmund's resentment before Oscar should speak to him. But the unfortunate Oscar did not let a moment slip. No sooner was his aunt's back turned to speak to an acquaintance when he darted away to find Ned. Ned was easily found. He was lying in his berth, so bundled in a rug that only a patch of his hair was visible. The poor boy had been crying, but of course, Oscar could not know that. He began in a loud, cheerful voice that grated on Edmund's nerves. I say, Ned, suppose we make up? We'd have lots more fun being friends, and I'd learn you had a box and everything. No answer. Say, Ned, are you asleep? No, I'm not, came in a fierce, smothered voice from the heap on the berth, and I'd wish you'd leave me alone. "'Then you don't want to make up and be friends?' said Oscar, in a changed voice. "'No, I don't. All right for you, then,' said Oscar, and with which withering sarcasm and a vast deal of dignity he marched out of the room. "'Catch me trying that again,' thought he. Nevertheless, his pride was soon conquered by his new admiration of Edmund and his longing for society. In a day or two he brought his best cap to his cousin, saying with assumed carelessness, "'You can have it, if you want it, for the one I knocked overboard.' "'Thanks.' answered Edmund stiffly. I don't want it. I have plenty of caps. He met all Oscar's rough yet timid advances in the same spirit. He was always civil, but an iceberg would have been as companionable. To Nora, who remonstrated with him, he said, I can't help it. I don't like him, and I never shall. He's bullied me all this voyage, and now he thinks he has only to ask me, and I'll make up. I wish he'd let me alone. How unforgiving you are, Ned, said Nora. Don't you ever do wrong things yourself? I never do mean things, and it's no use talking. I shall always despise him. She said no more, thinking, I will leave it to time. They will be so much together that they will have to like each other to be comfortable. If only Oscar didn't lose his temper and take to tormenting him again. Happily, Oscar kept his temper. He had a great notion of fairness, and once convinced that he had done wrong, he took his punishment unflinchingly, angry for the moment sometimes, but bearing no malice. By this time the voyage had ended, and they were in Warwickshire, visiting an English friend of Mrs. Morris. It was while there that they went one afternoon to drink tea with Lady Margaret Vincent. 
Lady Margaret was a Scotchwoman. She had married an Englishman, long since dead, and for many years had lived in England. But she travelled far and often, having even been to America, which is considered a prodigious journey in England. Edmund was charmed with Lady Margaret's home. He could not look enough at the quaint old garden with its former flower-beds and primly cut yew-trees, or the wonderful old house, the front of which had not been changed since Henry and Elizabeth. As they went through the hall, he gazed in an awestruck way at the great carved staircase and the walls where armor was hanging and strangely fashioned weapons. He felt as though he were stepping into the Middle Ages. Meanwhile, Oscar, oblivious of the Middle Ages and every other improving subject, was getting acquainted with the page. Oscar had seen pages for the first time in New York. He pitied them. They, they couldn't like it, rigged out in those ridiculous clothes and never able to laugh or play. Always willing to talk, he did his best to amuse them. Now he was busy questioning James. Did his high collar hurt him? Did he have to rub up his buttons to keep them bright? Did... Here his aunt saw him, and he jerked away. From the hall they passed into a room as odd as delightful. All the woodwork was of oak, age-darkened to a brown-black, and most curiously carved. The mantelpieces had high pillars decorated with ribbons and scrolls and shields and griffins' heads cut out of the wood and deep shelves on which there were arranged queerly shaped and colored china vases, teapots, and teacups. Oscar thought them ugly, wondering at the lady's admiration. Before the windows and doors hung tapestry curtains in which pictures of hunting seasons were woven. The stuff was darned in so many places that Oscar quite pitied Lady Margaret, who must have such old curtains. But Mrs. Morris gave a little scream of delight and cried, Oh, and how priceless! And something that sounded like goblets! But though Oscar looked hard at the curtains to find the goblins, he saw none. Then his eyes strayed over the polished floor and the dull-hued rugs over ebony and ivory cabinets and stiff-backed chairs to be fixed finally by a huge Wardian case. There were rocks in the case, coated with moss, ferns, and strange seaweeds grew on the edge of the water. Crabs clung below, lizards crept above, innumerable slimy things swam about midway. The case stood on a long table. Near it, on another box, half a dozen snakes lay coiled in one indistinguishable mass. Under the table, three monkey-like creatures were dancing and chattering. A wee Scottish terrier ran about sniffing at the guest's clothing. Before the fire of coals, for the day was chilly in June, was stretched a great white staghound. The room and all the animals made Oscar think of Alice's adventures in Wonderland. Lady Margaret was standing close to the staghound. Her tall, large figure was clad in black satin. Her fair old face was framed by an abundant white hair which had a gloss like silver, and her dark eyes were bright as her diamonds. She greeted them cordially at once, taking a fancy to Edmund, because of his evident delight in animals. Perhaps she might have thought better of Oscar, had she not caught him in the act of winking at the page. Very soon she began to speak of the creatures about her. "'Marmosets, my dears,' clutching one of the little chatterers under the table, they make a deal of noise, but like most noisy people's talk, it doesn't mean much. This is my aquarium. The seahorses are most odd, don't you think? And here, coolly pushing back her sleeve and plunging a plump white arm into the water. This, you know, just a frog. See how tame, and people call them ugly. That's all they know about it. Look at his beautiful skin and his honest eye. Isn't he handsome now? Here are some lizards, but they are not so interesting. Quite pleasant, you know, but not fascinating like frogs and snakes. Yes, my lad, I dare say you will be wanting to see the snakes. Here they are. They are as tame as they are beautiful. She isn't going to take them out in her hands, is she? Mrs. Morris whispered to her English friend. She always does, was the placid answer. See? 
Lady Margaret had made a bracelet of a snake and was holding out her arm. One by one, she added the others while Mrs. Morris, having interposed her friend between her and the spectacle, controlled her nerves as best she could. They are quite harmless. Quite, I assure you, said Lady Margaret, making a reassuring gesture with her arm, on which happened two snakes were coiled. Now look, my lads, I'll put this one back. He is a well-meaning snake, but rather stupid. This one I'll lay on the table. Mrs. Morris rapidly retreated towards the fire, stepping on the hound's tail by the way, and naturally bringing out a deep growl, which sent her back again. Unconscious of her guest's alarm, Lady Margaret continued, His name is Marcus Aurelius. I call him that after the great Roman emperor, because he is so sweet-tempered and intelligent. See what a humorous expression he has? And, in fact, the snake's tiny eyes and wide mouth had something the look of an ironical grin about them. Look! See him follow me about the table? He knows his friend. Don't you, my pet? Now, Marcus, I'll put up my arm for a pole. Make a monkey of yourself. Climb down again, now. Tapping the table. Be a dead snake. Very good. Now show them what you think of strangers. She motioned to Oscar. But he edged back behind Nora, muttering, No, they are nasty. Then Nora stepped forward. Instantly, the snake coiled itself up, hissing. Now you said Lady Margaret to Edmund. "'Oh, he won't be afraid of me,' laughed Edmund, stretching forth his hand. "'Come, pet.' And to Lady Margaret's surprise, the snake came, twining about the boy's wrist as it was used to twine about hers. "'Ah, now you have my gift, my dear,' she cried, delighted. She put the snake back in the box and excused herself for a moment. The page brought in the tea-tray. In a moment, Lady Margaret returned and made the tea. Mrs. Morris, who had been looking on all this while in a kind of trance of horror recovered enough at these refreshing signs to sink into a chair by a low table. She clutched her sister's arm. Nora sat next to her and murmured, Was there ever such an awful menagerie of a house? Be quiet, whispered Nora. I can't be quiet. Those dreadful little monkey things are under the table nibbling at my ankles. I shall have to scream. You can't scream. Don't disgrace your country. Lady Margaret will hear us, I much fear. She's making tea at the other table. Besides, Mrs. Darrell and Nettie are talking to her, Nora. Are you sure that big dog is safe? Did you hear him growl? It was an awfully fierce-sounding growl, and nor I think one of the snakes is loose. There were six in the box, and I count only five. Yes, Lady Margaret, the tea is quite right. It is delicious. But though, in truth, it was delicious, and though equally to be praised were the thin bread and butter, the Scotch shortbread from Edinburgh, and the English plum cake, Mrs. Norris never enjoyed a repast less. She spent her time making little sorties with her feet at the marmosets, which took it for play and returned to the attack with new zest. And she whispered to Nora that she was morally sure that the sixth snake was crawling up her chair. Nora herself was not at ease. Nevertheless, her patriotic politeness conquered, and she ate everything, looked at everything, praised everything. Lady Margaret found her most agreeable. Mrs. Darrell had seen the snakes too often to be disturbed, and Edmund was in his element. As for Oscar, he fell into a sad disgrace. He kicked the marmosets. Lady Margaret was too kind to say anything, but Mrs. Morris did the subject justice all the way home. At least you might have kicked them quietly under the table, said she, but no, you'd do it sideways in full view of everyone. The next day the party journeyed on towards London. The sun shone brightly, and the weather which had been so abnormally cold as to require overcoats, or as the English term them, topcoats, grew warmer, so that there was nothing to mar enjoyment unless it were the lack of harmony between the two boys. This still continued. If there were times when Edmund felt his dislike yielding ever so slightly to Oscar's good humor and gay spirits, his pride and 
His contempt for his cousin stiffened it at once. It was two days after their arrival in a quiet town near London, where they were to stay a few days for a rest at a picturesque old inn, that Mrs. Morris received a letter from Mrs. Darrell. She read it at the breakfast table. Before she was half down the first page, she turned to Nora. There! Didn't I tell you one of those snakes was gone? Listen to this. Poor Lady Margaret is in such distress over losing her pet snake, the one she called Marcus Aurelius. She thinks she didn't replace the cover of the box securely the day you were there, for she hasn't seen it since. She fears it crawled away and wandered into the village and was killed. Isn't she a dear old goose? Was it the little trick snake, said Oscar? What a shame. Edmund said nothing. He was sorry for Lady Margaret, and he was sorry for himself. The little Marcus Aurelius had made a deep impression on him. Ever since he had been meditating the bold venture of writing to Lady Margaret, asking her if she would sell or exchange that snake. He kept thinking of the matter all morning, wondering what had become of Marcus. In the afternoon he was to drive with his Aunt Nora. While he was dressing, Celeste, the maid, brought him his overcoat. Madame desired him to wear it, as he had a cold. "'Very well,' said Edmund, obliging as usual. Approaching to put the coat on, a little later he stopped short. Surely the wind didn't cause that singular flutter in the cloth. Then the flap moved. "'Come out!' cried Edmund. As though in response to his invitation, a small head erected itself from the pocket, a small green head with glittering eyes, a head which had an indescribably droll and waggish air, the head, in short, of the lost Marcus Aurelius. The intelligent reptile immediately crawled out. He wound himself about the hand Edmund held to him, curled under the boy's sleeve, nestled under his sleeve with the manifest pleasure at renewing the acquaintance. It was plain enough to Edmund how it had happened. The intelligent Marcus crawling into the hall, had spied the pocket of Edmund's coat and coolly entered. Once there, he had gone to sleep, and the unsuspecting Celeste had rolled the coat up in a strap, not to undo it until now. "'So here you are, you beauty,' said Edmund. "'And I'll take good care of you while you are mine. I only wish you could be mine forever.' There was a candy-box on the table with a glass cover. Of this, he hastily made a prison, then sallied out to find his captive some mice. They were not the easiest thing in the world to get, requiring considerable seeking and talking. He did not venture to tell why he wanted mice, and he overheard the housekeeper grumble. Most extraordinary boys, those Americans. Do you expect he wants to cat them? By this time Nora was ready. He had hardly replaced the snake in the box before he heard her knock at the door. It was a charming day and drive, yet I fear he saw little of the scenery. At last, that it must be confessed, a wicked thought had crept into his brain. He coveted Lady Margaret's snake. He coveted so ardently that he began to imagine how easy it would be for him to keep it. There was a man in London who sold snakes. Edmund had been up buying some snakes from him, which the man was to keep until he would want them. What more easy than to send Marcus Aurelius to this Saurian boarding-house? Ah, what an ugly temptation for Edmund, who had been called a good boy from his cradle. He would have no more of it. But it came back again, and finally, when he reached the inn, he had almost decided to keep the snake. Anyhow, I'll take it to Tomlin's. Tomlin was the snake man. He said to himself, There's no hurry. Yet, in his secret soul, he knew that once taken to Tomlin's, Marcus Aurelius would never return to Lady Margaret. Thus thinking, he went towards the box. The snake was gone. Yes, gone, vanished, absolutely leaving no trace either in the box or in the room. Vainly and long, Edmund searched. Either the cover had not fitted exactly, or Marcus, the intelligent Marcus, had managed to remove it. In either case, he had evidently set off anew on his travels. Edmund began to feel he had been a wicked boy. He stood in the center of the room, trying to collect his wits. 
oscar's room adjoined his he could hear oscar moving about whistling out a tune should he go in and search there standing irresolute he heard a loud cry from his cousin sloped gone then he followed a muffled sound which edmund rightly interpreted to be oscar poking under the bed with an umbrella and then came a thundering rap on the door say ned called oscar entering immediately i'm in an awful scrape your snake's gone my snake repeated edmund feebly yes the one you bought today i saw it in the glass box on your table edmund remembered that he had left the box in full view when he went for mice his face grew red did you let it out said he of course i didn't oscar answered did you think i'd do such a thing i opened the door to speak to you and i saw it on the table and i remembered you'd been talking of buying some snakes so i knew it was yours i didn't go into the room at all but this afternoon when i came into my own room ned this little green head was sticking out of my overcoat pocket Ugh. i pretty near put my hand on it i'd have called you but you'd gone and it wasn't any use calling aunt nelly she'd just jump on the bed and scream so i didn't know what to do for i can't handle those things like you ned so i pushed its head down with my toothbrush and pinned up the pocket with my scarf pin then i waited a while for you and i thought it had gone into a torpid condition like you read of and, and jack dale came in for me to go see punch and judy and when i got back the little deceitful beggar had cleared out i'm sorry ned edmund from red had turned pale he did not lift his eyes from the floor he was feeling more ashamed of himself than he had ever thought to feel in his life poor blundering oscar whom he had despised had conquered his horror of snakes to do a service to a boy who had never given him a pleasant word while well, he he had tried to steal lady margaret's pet now oscar was avowing his carelessness without a thought of concealment while he could not summon the courage to tell the truth it may be in the room somewhere he managed to say finally and never mind oscar you did your best to keep him i'm awfully sorry i am for a fact said oscar but of course it's my fault you're good not to row with me ned don't said edmund quickly why began oscar but his words were drowned by a tumult that suddenly arose outside shrieks voices a great trampling of feet they found marcus they're killing him cried oscar both boys flew out of the room don't kill him called edmund he is our snake shouted oscar people opened doors in all directions as the boys raced past one timid woman put her hand out of her window screaming police until quite a small army of blue-coated fellows had assembled another of boulder stamp thought the hotel was on fire and rushed to the rescue with her water jug don't kill em oscar and edmund kept crying a cry not calculated to reassure the nervous down the hall dashed the boys at the far end an agitated group variously armed with canes brooms and umbrellas was gathered about a fainting chambermaid supported in the arms of a waiter and fanned by another chambermaid with a brush broom just behind her stood the head waiter in his immaculate dress suit disgust painted on his countenance and a dustpan held aloft in his hand something very like a groan burst from edmund's lips for there on the dustpan his gleaming length trailing limply over the edges bruised battered crushed lay poor little dead marcus aurelius thus tragically had all his travels ended it's our snake cried oscar making a spring and snatching the dustpan from the man's hand without another word he darted off at full speed he did not hear the head waiter's dignified reproof young gentlemen as keeps snakes for pets better keep em safe ome in my opinion or one of the women's speeches i expect he have got a baby tiger hid somewhere them american children will do anything but edmund heard too dejected to retort he crawled back to his room this was the end of it then 
The poor pet must die because of his wicked wishes. He knew only too well that it was his haste to hide the snake lest his aunt should see it that had displaced the cover. Had he spoken up like an honest boy, he could have taken time to be careful, and poor Marcus would still be rejoicing in the sun. He did not dare to lift his eyes as he entered the room. He was afraid to look again at the pitiful spectacle of his making. Oscar had laid a newspaper on the bed and placed a dustpan on it, and now was looking mournfully down at Marcus. "'Tain't no use,' he muttered. "'Head smashed. It's an awful shame. Don't see how it got out of the room. I shut the door tight. Wish I'd locked it. Guess Aunt Nellie'll be vexed when she finds I've lost Ned's snake. Well, she's vexed about something most of the time, so it can't be helped. Then, for the first time, seeing Edmund's miserable face, he tried to comfort him. It's lucky you didn't have him long, Ned, so you hadn't got fond of him. I'll buy you another. Edmund lifted his head. Though Oscar did not guess it, in those last few moments he had fought a bitter fight with himself. He interrupted his cousin. The snake isn't mine. I didn't buy it. It's Lady Margaret Vincent's. He went on to tell of his finding the snake. Phew! whistled Oscar. You're right to guess all that. Probably tis hers, and you didn't tell Aunt Nora or Aunt Nilly? They'll know fast enough now, replied Edmund gloomily. After all this racket, they're running about yet. Well, we had to told them anyhow, said candid Oscar, and I guess I'll catch it. It's truly my fault. You didn't do nothing. But I ought to have stayed and watched, and I declare I'd forgotten it until this very minute. Aunt Nellie told me I mustn't run out in the streets ever without Celeste. She tells me so many things I can't keep track of all. And there's Lady Margaret, too. M must we tell her? stammered Edmund. Why, it's her snake, said Oscar, opening his honest eyes. How can we help it? I suppose we can't help it, said Oscar. But we might telegraph, said Oscar. It's a heap easier than writing, and you can get lots of words for a shilling. No, we'll have to write, said Edmund. I'll do it. But Oscar shook his head. No, Ned, that ain't fair. It's, I'm the most to blame, and I ought to do it. Besides, you wouldn't say it was my fault. Then the last barrier of Edmund's pride broke down. Don't, he cried again. I tell you, it's I'm to blame, and not you, and, and Oscar, I've been very mean to you all along. No, you haven't, said Oscar promptly. It was me bullying you in the first place made all the trouble. Aunt Nora told me maybe you wouldn't want to be friends for a while, and she told me all about the mad dog, and I thought you were a pretty nice boy, and I wished you would like me, but you wouldn't, so I pretended I didn't care. But I did. It's lonesome traveling about with a feller that's mad with you all the time. Edmund swallowed a little lump in his throat. If you'll make up with me now, I'll never be mad with you again, he said, holding out his hand. Oscar clasped it across the bed over the mangled remains of the too adventurous Marcus Aurelius, whose adventures thus were not quite in vain. Edmund kept his word. Indeed, he was surprised to find how easy it was to like Oscar, and Nora's prediction was fulfilled. The two boys were very happy in Europe, but Edmund never forgot Marcus. He told the truth to Nora, and she persuaded Mrs. Norris to deal gently with Oscar. He went to the races, after all. Previously, Edmund had written the whole story to Lady Margaret in a letter, which she read with smiles and tears. The postcard was by Oscar. It ran as follows. Dear Lady Margaret, Ned won't let me see his letter, but I'm sure he took all the blame on himself, because he always does. But it was me to blame, and not him, because I pinned the snake in my coat pocket, because I was afraid to handle it, and ran off to the Punch and Judy show, and it got out, and the head waiter killed it. I didn't give him any tip when he went away. I'm very sorry, and I'm sorry I kicked the marmosets, but they bit my legs. No more at present. From your obedient servant to command, Oscar T.W. It only remains to say that Marcus Aurelius is back home, at Lady Margaret's. 
but she never makes a bracelet of them. Now, most ingeniously mended and stuffed, he abides perpetually in a glass case, and she describes his perfections and his lamentable end with tears in her eyes. End of chapter 33